They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. And Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. Wow, Elliot, uh, pretty big, big week for the podcast. This is our one year celebration. So if you listen to this one before episode 52, or if you listen to this in the future, you won't care. But for the one year, there's two episodes this week, really exciting. But that also means we need twice the banter. So Elliot, what, what are we bantering about here in this first one? <laughs> Good. Twice the banter, double the laughs. <laughs> good good reference. Uh, well, we're not really bantering about anything, but I thought that we would talk now about Barry. Barry has ended. We've both seen the last no! episode. Um, Ryan's making all kinds of noise. So, what, uh, Nathan, what do you think about Barry as a show? What did you think about the last season? What did you think about the last episode? Um, wow, that's three questions in one. Uh, I don't want to really spoil a ton of stuff. I thought the last episode was good. I thought the last season as a whole felt a little rushed, that they knew where they wanted to end up, but didn't necessarily know how to perfectly pace everything in the build-up to that. I think the show as a whole, I love the show. I don't think anything's going to change the fact that I think this is one of the best modern televisions you could watch. I do think as a whole, the show really becomes something that you might not expect when you start it. The first season is significantly more comedic. And even the second season, in some sense, is a lot more comedic. The last two seasons are really just incredibly depressing and dreary not in a bad way but just in a this is the way these characters are going to end up right the a sense in which this is the inevitable course of people who behave like the characters behave in the first two seasons eventually they end up in this very dark place but i really i really enjoyed it i got a kick out of it i'd recommend anyone watch it uh, Elliot, what did you think? Um, I agree. I think that I probably liked this last season maybe a little bit more than you did. Um, there were some pacing choices that I did find a little bit odd. Uh, and a, I also don't want to spoil it. So I, just, I thought that the way they divided the season was somewhat questionable, but it ultimately ended up working. I love the show as well. I would say it's probably one of my top five favorite shows. I thought that the, I also, I thought the last episode was definitely good. Uh, it was very far from being bad or disappointing. It was satisfying. But I think that what I said to you before we started recording is pretty much what I think, that 
if I were to be really harsh, I would say that the last episode doesn't live up to the standard that the show has set for itself. And uh, it's funny you should mention the surprise factor of this show because I feel like this episode was honestly one of the least surprising of the series. Uh, I was able to pretty accurately foretell what was going to happen, and I usually can't do that. Like, this show is very good at pulling the rug out from under you and showing you something that you weren't expecting, but I, I pretty much had this one called by the time we were halfway through. Intra, I don't think I had that sort of prediction, but uh, that's that's enough about Barry. That's enough about Barry. Let's get to let's get to the movie. So, as we said at the beginning, this is the one year anniversary of the beginning of the podcast. And for this sort of anniversary, we decided we would do two episodes this week, one on my favorite movie and one on Elliot's favorite movie. This episode is Elliot's favorite movie. So, Elliot, why don't you give us a quick plot rundown on what the movie is that we're reviewing today, uh, your commonly most commonly cited favorite movie, I guess. I don't want to pigeonhole you and say this has to be your favorite, but this is the one I hear mentioned most. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Nathan, Nathan Mogliines, my dear listening audience, welcome to No Country for Old Men. So No Country for Old Men is a neo-Western movie directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, released in 2012 or 2011. Oh my gosh. I think it's, isn't it 2011? 2007. 2007? 2007. Oh, yes. okay. I'm not sure what I'm thinking about. Whatever. Uh, released in 2007. It's based on the Cormac McCarthy book of the same name, and it follows uh, three main characters a hunter who stumbles on a drug deal gone wrong and takes the money that was left over for himself and then goes on the run from main character to a hitman who is brought in to hunt him down and retrieve the money for the criminal organizations, all while both are being pursued by main character number three, a, a sheriff, Sheriff Bell, who is just trying to enforce the law, as sheriffs are wont to do, and protect the hunter, Llewellyn Moss, from the hitman, Antoine Chigurh. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty good rundown. I would also add this was the Best Picture winner in 2008, the 2008 Oscars. It's widely considered, I'd say, by most people to be the Coen Brothers' best movie. Either this or Fargo, I think, is probably what the vast majority of movie fans would say uh it is considered one of the best movies of all time it's on a lot of lists in a very good position so yeah this is a very elliot's not you know he, he he's kind of mainstream so he's picking a mainstream sort of film here to be his favorite uh <laughs> But um, I guess I'll start, because I'm assuming you're going to talk an atrocious amount this episode. I can sort of give my thoughts here before I let you give some huge 
just long-winded thing about how good the movie is. I also really like this movie. <laughs> I have seen it uh, three times, I, I think, in its entirety. There's been a, more than a few times that I'm home and you're watching it, and I'll stick around to watch a scene if it's one of my favorite scenes or something. But I remember really enjoying this the first time I saw it. I had issues with the ending, which we'll get into as we talk more about the movie. But I, I really like this movie. I read the book uh, sometime last summer, I think it was. And I loved the book. It's probably my favorite Cormac McCarthy book. I thought the book was better than the movie, which will factor into somewhat uh, some of my critiques of the movie. But I think as a whole, this movie is fantastic. It's really amazingly made. The acting is amazing. The action is really incredible. And just the way it delivers the feeling of reading a Cormac McCarthy book, I think is really impressive. And we'll kind of get more into what that means. Elliot, uh, you know, what do you think of this? How many times have you seen this movie? Uh, <laughs> I've seen this movie well over a dozen times, uh, probably somewhere in the low to mid 20s. I also watched this movie for the first time in high school. Uh, I watched it after you had watched it. I watched it on your recommendation. And this was not like, whoa, my voice just cracked. <laughs> my voice just cracked like I'm getting emotional <laughs> about my child. Uh, this was not my favorite movie the first time I ever saw it. I I was kind of put off by the violence and the pacing of it. Uh, this is a movie, one of those movies that, for whatever reason, I just started watching and re-watching and re-watching. And the more I re-watched it, the more, the more I could see, the more I was able to see, like, Neo seeing the code of the Matrix. I was able to see what the movie was doing with its themes of societal degeneration and like interpersonal relations decaying. So uh, I'll be honest. I wrote, I wrote an essay about this movie for one of my college classes <laughs> talking about like a thematic analysis of this movie for literary theory. Uh, and it got an A. So I, I guess, I guess I'm saying I, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, wow. I, just find this, I, I know I, I know I'm just so incredible I find this movie so thematically rich and so entertaining it is absolutely gripping and tense it's got some of the best staged action sequences I've seen in any movie ever it's got one of the greatest villains to ever hit the screen I think that I'm gonna give a lot of love to Tommy Lee Jones but I just have to say he was a pitch perfect cast for Sheriff Bell. Um, I also love Josh Brolin as Llewellyn, and I love Javier Bardem as Antoine Chigurh. Roger Deakins brings his usual triple S tier level talent to this movie. He's the cinematographer. We were talking a bit before this about how unusually, how surprisingly funny this movie is. It is legitimately funny. Um, and yeah, uh, to I think that the ending is perfect. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. There, uh, I, I can't even imagine how silly a person would have to be to find fault with this movie's conclusion. 
Wow. Uh, I also, I've read this book. So Cormac McCarthy is actually one of my favorite authors. Uh, I've read this book. I really enjoyed it a lot. I would say I think the movie is a little bit better than the book. And I agree with you. This is a very Cormac McCarthy movie. And I think that Cormac McCarthy is not absent from this movie in the way that, you know, sometimes, I just said, you know. No! I'm sorry, No Country for Old Men. I failed you with subpar vernacular and filler words. But sometimes when a book, a movie is based on a book, uh, the book kind of isn't really in the conversation uh, and neither is the author. So like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the movie and the book are very different. But this, this movie is very, very close to what actually happens in the book. And of course, Cormac McCarthy, if you've never read him before, first of all, I would recommend you do so. But if you haven't, he has a very distinctive style and aesthetic to his works. And I think that this movie does a fantastic job. Better, Definitely better than The Road did at capturing The Road. I think that No Country for Old Men absolutely understood the essence of its source material. Yeah, so let's kind of, let's kind of dig into that. Because I think this is the movie that I think of when it comes to bringing the style and feeling of a book to the screen, right? You might not think of novels as necessarily having that much style per se, but I think very talented authors can bring quite a bit of style to both their writing as well as kind of the feeling of honestly, even just looking at the page because Cormac McCarthy doesn't use any uh, grammar. So his pages feel very sparse. It's just the words. There's, I think he does do periods, but there's nothing else in terms of like commas or stuff like that, right? He does, he does periods and he does commas to denote spaces. He doesn't use them in a grammatically correct way. Like you would say they would be comma splices, uh, speaking grammatically, but he does use them to contribute to the flow uh, and the pace of his sentences. Yeah. Well, and then the the tone of kind of his novels are very, I think, um, unemotional, that it feels like it's being written by an observer of the events in the thing. I think like The Road refers to it as the man and the boy, like it's not necessarily from the first person, it's a third person perspective and it's describing these things that are happening. And then to talk about the movie, the movie has very famously no musical score. In fact, there's very little, I think there's only one scene with music at all and it's diegetic music. And the way it is shot and the amount of space they give the moments makes watching the movie feel similar to reading the book, right? That especially the opening, there's a lot of these shots of landscapes. There's a lot of, there's very minimal dialogue. So for a lot of the scenes, it's just uh, like, there at the beginning, when Lou Allen finds the drug deal gone wrong, he finds all these cars and dead bodies. The only sound is, right, you can hear kind of the wind. You can hear him 
walking through the dirt and such. You can hear like flies, but it's very matter of fact. It's very unemotional. It's just showing the things that are happening and not necessarily really trying to get you all that invested in it in the sense of, right, there's no like dramatic close-ups. There's no um, fancy camera work. It's just the camera shooting what's happening in the film. And it keeps that style throughout the movie. And I think it's so fantastic because it communicates so much of this um, unattached observer sort of feeling that you get from the book, as well as this very sparse and um, I can't really come up with a good word besides sparse is sort of how it feels that there's just not a lot in it despite there being a lot in it, if that makes some sense. But yeah, I think the style of this movie is really fantastic, and you can attribute it to the cinematographer, the sound design, and just the choices that they made as directors and um, set sort of people to have it all be done in this way. Yeah, I, I agree. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I think that... And uh, I'm going to draw on the essay that I wrote about this movie, but I think that the remove at which this movie is filmed and from which it feels like it's being told is supposed to mimic the way that Sheriff Bell feels a growing detachment from the world that he lives in. Like, the whole point of Sheriff Bell as a character is how different he feels like his world has become and how further and further away he feels from the violence and the greed and the ultimate nihilism of the society that he inhabits, uh, which you get a lot more of in the book because he, there's a lot more interludes about Sheriff Bell as a character. But I think that they, they do that here because this is ostensibly... Uh, given the introduction when Sheriff Bell is narrating and says the crime you're about to see, it's hard to take its measure. So there's a sense in which Sheriff Bell is almost like our unheard narrator in this movie. Or at least the movie is supposed to be, the, the story is being seen through his eyes primarily. And I think that we get that in these wide-angle, long-distance shots of people doing terrible things to each other. Uh, I just want to say, I think everyone gets kind of, or at least if you're a movie fan, everyone gets really pretentious when they talk about their own, like their favorite movies. But Unheard Narrator is one of the stupidest, most pretentious things I've ever heard. If a narrator is unheard, they have no impact on anything. <laughs> the narrator is exclusively heard. <laughs> That's the only way for a narrator to be present. <laughs> well, that's great, Nathan. Uh, I just like to I just like to put a limit on the amount of comments that we can get from the peanut gallery here. Uh, let's let's oh leave the goodness. the analysis to the trained uh, the people who have been trained in analyzing. And reporting on stories like like me, like I have. Uh, I don't know if I told you, but I got an A on this essay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I guess if you, I was 
maybe thinking of waiting until later, but if you want to dive into, it seems like you kind of want to talk about the thematic elements of the movie. I think I agree with some of the things you say in terms of thematic elements. I think my issue with the themes of the film is I think it comes through a lot better in the book because Belle is more present in the book. Like you said, there's, I think it's like every other chapter or every two or three chapters, there's an interlude of Bell uh, kind of going about his day. He's, um, I think there's one where he's at a convention or he's like protecting a convention or something like that. But there's these interludes of him kind of out about in the world. And it's building this sense in my mind of the title, right? No Country for Old Men. I think the book goes almost even further that it's anything that loses social utility or anything that loses kind of its ability to do something is then devalued and discarded by society. That Bell feels that people are increasingly becoming removed from the things they can use. And this is going to be incredibly pretentious, but because my philosophy professor said it, I'll say it as well. Anton Chigurh represents then the ultimate horrifying realization of this, that he does not see anyone in society as having any intrinsic value outside of their ability to move him along in his pursuit of the money and Lou Allen. And my philosophy professor referenced him as a Kantian nightmare, Kant being Immanuel Kant, whose kind of fundamental moral philosophy was you have to treat people like they matter, basically. That you have to treat people like they have some value. And Anton Chigurh represents a horrifying flip side of this, that he treats everyone as some tool that he can use to move on to the next thing. He even thinks of himself as a tool in the scene where he goes to kill Stephen Root. Shout out Barry. Stephen Root is in Barry. Um, he says, why would you hire someone else? You already hired the best tool. You've got the best tool. He doesn't see anyone as having any meaning outside of their right use to him. And he doesn't see himself as having that much meaning. And so I think in that, in Anton Chigurh, a lot of the movie's ideas and kind of this terrifying nihilism that Bell is fighting against is represented and, right, we just watch him as he kills his way through all of the other optimistic, happy characters. And it's a real bummer. But... That's where I see sort of the main crux of the thematic sort of elements is Anton and Sheriff Bell. And Llewellyn Moss is just kind of there as the thing that the plot is going through. But I don't see if he that he has that much of a thematic element to his character's journey. Uh, yeah, I agree. Obviously, uh, I know who you're talking about philosophy professor wise. I'm not sure why you're getting after me for being pretentious when that that was straight out of like a literary journal published by Oxford um, analysis of this movie and its themes. I think that so I'm going to 
complement your pretentiousness with some more pretentiousness. And I'm going to say that I think that Llewellyn's function thematically is very much as a is very much tied to this movie's status as a neo-western. I'm even starting to starting to talk the way I talk in my essays. <laughs> um, because he is so much not your typical western hero who is usually pretty benevolent or self-sacrificing or just a, a, a better person, Llewellyn is motivated purely by greed, just like Chigurh is and just like the criminal enterprises are. Like, he wants this money and he wants to keep it. And that's his own... He, he's, not, he's not trying to do anything good with it. He's not trying to, like, give it to the poor or turn it into the police. He's just doing it for himself. And that's how he brings Chigurh onto himself. And that's... That's uh, part of this societal degradation that Bell is so afraid of. He, in every scene, well, almost every scene he's in, he comments on the way things are changing, the way that they're becoming more mechanized and more removed from each piece of society is becoming more removed from itself. So he talks about how people have mechanized killing animals. Um, they've made it more impersonal, where instead of cutting the animal's throat yourself, you just have to shoot out a little rod. Um, I don't know if either of those are, like, somehow one of them is more, I I don't know, ethical or uh, commendable than the other one, but I think it is important to note that Sheriff Bell is clearly being written in the movie and in the book as being kind of a con- more conservative, older man of the South. And so anyway, and then he talks about this one family that have just been murdering people and torturing them. And he's like, I don't know why. Uh, it may be the television set was broken. And he comments on how nobody noticed what was happening, even though neighbors were right across from them and they presumably could see them digging graves in the backyard. There was no tip off for them. Excuse me. So I think that one of the things I love about this movie is that it ties its themes to its characters. Its characters are living out the movie's thematic thematic content in a way that not every other movie with big ideas on its mind that it wants to get across is willing to do so. A lot of movies more uh, more skew towards people talking about things mm. to make sure that the audience understands what is being said no country for old men has more faith i think in the audience's ability to see this is what's happening and then from that conclude this must be why it's happening or this is what the movie thinks is why it's happening it's happening and that's what the movie wants me to be thinking about yeah and i think on that sort of note and also to move us away from maybe the thematic things, I think the movie also has a lot of faith in its audience in the sense of, I wrote this in the notes, the movie is slow enough that it always gives you enough time to figure out kind of what Llewellyn's plan is, what Anton's plan is. I think especially of those scenes in the motel, right, where he puts the money in the vent and then he gets a room 
connected to the same vent so he can move the money between these two rooms without anyone seeing. And so he doesn't get murdered by going back to his original room. And I think the movie does such a great job of it's not holding your hand. Like it's not like, there's not a scene of Lou Allen, like die writing in his diary. Like here's my game plan on how I'm going to avoid Anton. But the movie always gives you enough space that if you're really engaging with it and you're using right your brain and your thinking, you can figure out what the characters are going to do before they do it. But the movie is never so slow, or at least is never until the end so slow that you're kind of bored with it. I think it strikes a really nice balance of it's slow enough that you can think but not so slow that you start thinking like, what am I going to have for lunch today? Or, you know, when I'm, I wonder who's going to win the Kentucky Derby or whatever it is people think about. So I, I think that's another thing that I think is also kind of a technical element that I think is very good that they know how to let each scene breathe for just long enough that we can figure it out without being kind of having our hands held through it, but not so long that we're sitting there just rolling our eyes, waiting for it to end. Yeah, I agree. I think that now that I am myself, an old man who has no country to go to, uh, I appreciate this movie's pacing a lot more because it's, it's about setup and payoff. It's about building tension and then, uh, showing and then having the catharsis of that tension being released. Um, so uh, I want—I I definitely want to shout out the action scenes in this movie are incredible. First of all, they are—they are. There is no. How should I say this? There is no exaggeration to them. Like there is no attempt to make it seem flashy. Or it's not trying to make it seem cool in the way that a... And we talked about this a bit in our Hell or High Water episode when we talked about neo-Westerns and their approach to violence. That violence in neo-Westerns is always very matter-of-fact. Like, this is a shotgun. This is what it does to a human body. That's just all there is to it. Obviously, the most infamous shot is when Antoine breaks into Llewellyn's old hotel room and the Mexican cartel is there waiting for him and a guy is on the bed and Antoine shoots him and there is a brief but very graphic shot of his arm almost falling off. Um, and the idea is that it's trying to de-romanticize the way violence was romanticized in old westerns. Like, there's nothing pretty or cool or fun about the violence in this movie. It's just really kind of horrible. <laughs> um, and more to the point, I think that one of my favorite scenes is the scene in the other hotel when Antoine finally does track down Llewellyn because I think that this movie does such a good job of making it believable that Llewellyn could avoid this highly trained hitman but he's always on his back foot in this scene. Like, he's always reacting to what Antoine is doing and escaping by the skin of his teeth, but not in, like, a Hollywood blockbuster kind of way where it feels kind of forced, like it has to be 
by the skin of his teeth. It really feels like he's desperately trying to stay just one step ahead of Antoine, barely. Yeah, I definitely agree. And that just goes into, right, the same sort of things we were talking about with technique, right? That the movie is very unemotional towards its violence. It's very removed from the action. And because of that, it has a very gritty, realistic feeling, not in the way of like the Dark Knight or even the most recent Batman movie. Like it's gritty and realistic because it's very, like it's fully believable. Like Lou Allen doing what he does fairly believable it makes sense like he's decent he's smart he's able to manufacture his way out of like some of the situations but at the end of the day he's not a hired hitman and so he ends up getting killed like that's just what happens it's tough um i guess i would sort of like to talk about just because we haven't mentioned it yet we kind of mentioned it at the beginning but the actors in this, uh, my personal pick, I think Josh Brolin is absolutely amazing in this movie. I know Anton and Javier Bardem got a lot of the hype. He won an Academy Award for it. I know you really love Tommy Lee Jones in this. But I think Josh Brolin is so amazing. And I think it's even more impressive because what was the – I was watching some – Oh, I was watching Milk, which has Josh Brolin in it. And I was thinking about how Josh Brolin has really kind of made a name for himself in recent years as kind of the heavy, right? Think in Hail Caesar, he plays kind of a fixer man. In Deadpool 2, he played Cable, obviously a very talented, violent, tough guy. He plays Thanos in the Avengers movies, also a very... So I think the fact that in this movie... He has such a small presence. And by presence, I mean, like, he feels very small. And maybe it's just because of how big Anton Chigurh feels. But I think it's also partially because Josh Brolin does such an amazing job of playing this sort of everyman. And I think it's even more impressive given the characters he's gone on to play, that they've been just very masculine, that his Llewellyn Moss feels like he's described in the book as some, right, 40-something, 30-something-year-old who's just kind of trying to make some money, and he's always on his back foot, like you said. So I think Josh Brolin, amazing in this movie. That's I just wanted to shout out him. Uh, yeah, uh, no disagreements here. I think that everyone in this movie is on their A-game. I also love Josh Brolin in this movie. I probably do talk about him and his character the least when I talk about this movie, but that's in no way an indictment of him or his performance. It's just, I find Antoine Chigurh and Sheriff Bell to be even more interesting and compelling and well-filmed and well-acted. Uh, like I said, I think that Chigurh is one of the best villains in movie history. Honestly, I think that he's better in the movie than in the book, because in the book we get more of kind of an insight into his uh, inner monologue and his inner thoughts. And I think having him be more alien and more removed works better for the story. But I still think he is good in, in the book, but yeah, he's just, he's terrifying. Like he, he, 
he makes expressions and he emotes, but there is nothing behind him. He's a creature of pure reason. And the only real emotion that he has is like sadism. Like he, he enjoys killing people. Um, it, he, he likes killing people, which is very messed up, but also, yeah, he's just such a good foil to Llewellyn because a villain, ha in order for a villain to be good, they have to be effective. Um, they have to actually challenge the hero. And Antoine Chigurh poses, poses such an enormous challenge to Llewellyn that I think he couldn't help but be one of the best movie villains ever. And yeah, Tommy Lee Jones, I think he was just such, he was like, he was like a, a Nathan, I think you might have mentioned this before, but you have a lot of respect for Sarah Haley Finn, who, if you did not know, is the casting director for Marvel. So we have her to thank for casting like Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, Chris Evans as Captain America, Chris Hemsworth as Thor. And I agree, she's got a really good eye for that kind of thing. And the reason I bring her up is because I think that Tommy Lee Jones is a Sarah Haley Finn level casting. He's definitely got the look for it because he's got that famous craggy old face. <laughs> um, but also, he brings so much gravitas and not charisma, but like, I don't know, presence and likability to this movie. Um, and he's also very funny. <laughs> like, he, I like when he and his deputy go to Llewellyn's trailer. Um, and the deputy's like, uh, we need to, we need to find this guy. And Sheriff Bell is like, okay, what do we say? Looking for a man who has recently drunk milk. Um, because they their only evidence that someone had been there was a bottle of opened milk. Um, so yeah, he's, he's just really funny and he can communicate this weary sadness that is so integral to the character of Sheriff Bell. And he's just tired and 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 worn out and he doesn't understand the things that are happening like he said in his beginning narration it's not that he's afraid of the things that are happening it's that if he engages with the world on its own terms then he's a part of the world and he doesn't know he in fact he is sure that he doesn't want to be a part of the world as it is yeah well, I think, you know, we've spent enough time complimenting the movie. It's time, you know, let's put on our critics' glasses. Let's take off our rose-colored glasses. And let's let's be a bit more critical. I, I told you this the first time that you kind of, when you started falling in love with this movie, I was like, yeah, it's good. I don't like the ending. I don't understand the ending. I think it's pretentious stupidity. Since then... You've explained the ending. I've read the book, which I think explains the ending somewhat more. And now here's my new take. The ending is still stupid. <laughs> Let me explain. I agree with a lot of the things you say about Belle. Belle disappears from this film for like 45 minutes of it. He is almost entirely absent from the first like hour. And then he reappears. So... In my mind, the movie has not done a very good job of establishing him as the third protagonist as much as just kind of a secondary dude who's in the film. And so then after Llewellyn is killed, we have these scenes of him going to, what was it, that his like uncle's house or something? 
Yeah. Like that. And then we have the scene of Anton killing or maybe not killing Mrs. Moss. And then we have the final scene of him telling him this dream. And honestly, any movie that ends with a character explaining a dream, that's pretty pretentious in my opinion. I mean, that's ridiculous. The idea that dreams mean anything, I think is difficult to prove scientifically, but whatever. I just think ending the movie with him makes less sense because he's not in so much of the movie compared to the book where he is in, like we said, he's got these interlude kind of chapters where we get more of his kind of mindset, but we don't have that in the film. So I just think ending with him is not set up properly in the film. And then I think Anton getting in a car accident, I still think this is such a stupid, like, even if it's trying to drive home the point in the film of kind of the banality of mistakes and fate sort of thing, right? That, oh, he got in a car accident. That's just what happens. But it feels so pointless. Whereas in the book, it's established that he's about to become like, a super assassin. He's about to get like a promotion <laughs> in his assassin job. So him breaking his arm causes issues with the chances of that promotion kind of coming through. So there's real consequences to it as opposed to the film where it just feels like this bizarre event that happens for no reason six minutes before the movie is over. So I, I I still don't like the ending. I think the last 20 minutes of the film lose a lot of what makes the first hour and 40 minutes of the movie so good because we're suddenly focusing significantly more on a character who had not been that important up to now. Uh, well, here's my take on the ending. The ending isn't stupid. Nathan is stupid. Let me explain. Uh, so <laughs> I think that Honestly, I don't remember Sheriff Bell not being a part of this movie for a, any significant stretch. Um, so I think that Nathan might just be like lying or something, which is, which is pretty pretty messed up if you ask me. But uh, anyway, even if even if that's true, I think that the movie is doing a lot of character work on Bell in his scenes. That his scenes do a lot of heavy lifting for him as a character because he's always. Throughout the movie, he's always been <clears throat> kind of like a like an unheard narrator, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what what I mean is, the movie is sort of, his interludes are updates on like the themes of the movie. That he, this is they're about Sheriff Bell's increasing disillusionment with his job and with the kinds of things that it asks him to do which in turn is related to his assessment of modern society. Um, so I think that it makes total sense to end the movie with him because he's always been kind of our guide through it. Um, the scenes with Antoine Chigurh and Llewellyn, they don't have a lot of dialogue and they don't have, we don't have a lot of explicit sense of what the characters are thinking or why they're doing what they're doing. We get a lot of that context, I think, from Bell because he's talking about the movie's themes, which in turn are grounded in Llewellyn and in Chigurh and in their interplay off each other. And then as far as 
So I, I, I'm fine with Antoine's card crash because I think either way, a compound bone fracture that he's not going to be able to treat very easily is going to have a significant impact on him and on his work. And it shows that he is not like some kind of superpowered arbiter of nihilistic meaninglessness. He's just as vulnerable to it as anyone else, which helps to keep the movie grounded uh, in reality, as opposed to having him be this borderline supernatural force that is completely untouchable um, from completely protected from the kinds of random disasters and random evil that he represents, that he is the sort of emissary of. And then the dreams, I think that the dreams are the conclusion to Bell's character. Because uh, the one dream he says he is trying to give some money to his father, or his father is trying to give some money to him, um, and he had lost the money. So that's about his guilt over having failed Llewellyn because Llewellyn was trying to, or he was trying to get the money from Llewellyn and thereby protect him. And then the other one, he says, uh, it's this kind of, it's a very Western kind of idea because it's about his father riding on a horse with a bunch of fire in a dark night to set it up to give people a place to stay in protection from the darkness. And then when he wakes up, it's him coming back to reality. Like, that just doesn't exist. There is there is no hope. There is no light in the darkness. Uh, or at least that's what he's afraid of. He's afraid of waking up from this dream of the old times. But he says that the dream was in the old times when people rode horses and had fire. But he has to wake up from that because, and I know I'm talking a lot, and I know this is all very pretentious, but again, I, this, is, this is really... This is good, subtle, sophisticated stuff. Because I love the scene of him talking to his uncle when his uncle tells about how uh, one of his relatives was killed kind of just for no reason. And he's like, this thing that you're so afraid of that you think this change that you've seen in the world, this is what it's always been like. It, this is not, this isn't about you or your fears about the world your fears about the world have been true since the beginning and so the you there's more meaning to his last dream in that because he's sort of been shaken awake from this idea that the old times were some kind of paradise of honor and kindness and goodwill towards all men including old men yeah yeah, I guess I see that. I'm also going to refrain from making fun of you for being pretentious too much because I am not 100% sure I won't sound the exact same when we do my favorite movie <laughs> when we record that episode. So I don't turn about as fa fair play, so I'm not trying to call down a bunch of that on me. I do think you're somewhat right, and I like the way you explain... Anton's car crash, that it does sort of represent a, he, just like everyone else in the film, is ultimately subservient to, right, these random acts of violence, these random acts of luck, these random acts of fate, right? That the whole movie, he's kind of ascribing a supernatural power to a lot of the things. I think of stuff like the scene, the coin flip scene with that old man at the gas station, 
that he's like, this coin has traveled so far to be here. And now, right, there's just the facts. It's either heads or tails. Like there's no divine inspiration behind this. This coin is a thing that ex- I love too when he leaves that he's like, don't put it in your co- pocket because then it'll become just a coin. And as he's leaving, he says, which it is anyway, that it's ascribing a specialness to things while also keeping in mind that they are not special. That I just think that's kind of a neat little thing. But yeah, I still disagree. I think you were spouting a lot of poppycock there in your little uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, kind of just some last few thoughts. I think it's kind of interesting that everyone, or at least two characters, when they come to the scene of the drug thing, that two separate characters comment on the dog being shot. I just think it's kind of a funny thing of like, what do we find weird or interesting that none of the characters get there and they're like, oh no, humans have been murdered, but two characters get there and they're like, oh, that's a shame. They shot the dog. That They seem more concerned about the fact that the dog was shot than the fact that, you know, people were shot, which I don't think it means anything deep. I just thought it was interesting that two separate characters did it. I I also wanted to say that the line I was talking about before we started recording that I found very funny was Sheriff Bell's put on a bulletin for a man who's recently drank milk or drunken milk or whatever it was. Um, that was the line that I found very funny. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Elliot, do you have any final thoughts or do you, do you have another thingy that you want to talk about before you get to your final thoughts? Not really. I think that this movie is surprisingly funny. Um, and I think that that's important to not let the rest of the grim nihilism overwhelm you. But yeah, there are some there are some good jokes in this. Uh, some very Coen Brothers style humor, like when he's trying to just get he's trying to get tent poles, and he's like, uh, uh, "I want a tent." And he's like, "What kind of tent?" That he's like, "Kind of with the most poles." Um, I just think that I just really appreciate those little touches. Uh, yeah, we, I mean. There's nothing that we can say that hasn't already been said about Roger Deakins and his understanding of how to frame and shoot anything, action, dialogue, landscapes, in accordance with the movie that it's in. And yeah, it's just so pleasing. It's just so pleasing to watch movies that have been shot by Roger Deakins. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I think that I should say... I don't agree with this movie's extremely grim assessment of things. I, like, I don't want to give the impression that I am, I myself am like, oh yeah, the life is pointless and there and everything's random. And I've tried, I've thought a lot about why I like this movie so much, despite it being kind of fundamentally opposed to my own personal philosophy. And I think it's just. A, it's just a really entertaining, superbly well-made movie, but also I just find it really interesting to think about. I I find any idea that's well-articulated and well-expressed, I am willing to listen to, and these kinds of ideas I just think are are interesting, and they are important to try to suss out um, from a purely secular point of view. These are even more important, these ideas of trying to 
trying to figure out some kind of logically defensible system of values and ethics. Yeah, I I think that makes a lot of sense. One of my favorite philosophical statements of all time is in Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan. He says there is no uh, selfless act, that he argues any act, no matter how kind and charitable, can ultimately be driven down to a selfish sort of desire. And I fundamentally disagree with it, but it's my favorite because it was one of the biggest things that I had to wrestle with. Like, I know, like, I really don't want this to be true. So why is it not true? And I think this movie represents a similar sort of thing, that the movie is espousing a certain worldview or articulating a certain argument for a worldview. And if you really disagree with it, the movie does such a good job of representing it. You have to really dig down to find, okay, where do I think this is wrong? Why do I think this is wrong? Which I think is always a really fun thing uh, to do because then you come to a greater understanding of yourself and your values and your inner philosophy. So I think that's cool you have that with this movie. I don't because the movie sucks. I'm just probably kidding. should have saved that joke or you should have not saved that joke to right before you're about to give this movie a good grade. Yeah, I guess we could get to grades here. Uh, yeah, I really I wish I disliked this movie more just so I could own my brother like a like a total bully. Uh, but I don't. This is a fantastic movie. It's in my top. I want to say it's like number five on my list of best, best picture winners. Um, it's probably my favorite Coen Brothers movie. It's one of, I think, the best neo-Westerns. I think it's fascinating. It's so well done. I love the book. I think this is one of the best book to film adaptations you could probably watch. My only issue is, yeah, those things that I talked about with those last 20 minutes. But even that is still, you know. You explaining it, I sort of see it. So I think I'm going to come down on like a, a 9.3 out of 10 is my score for this film. I I love this movie. Uh, there's really not much else I can say. This is my favorite movie of all time. Uh, I've seen it many, many times. I also love the book. I love Cormac McCarthy, the Coens. I love all the actors. I love the cinematography, I love the themes, I love the action, I love the dialogue, I love the sparseness, uh, and I think the word you were looking for earlier might be barren. Uh, it's kind of a barren movie, and Cormac oh, McCarthy's yes. style is definitely barren. Um, and this, I agree, this movie is a fantastic, this movie understands intrinsically the appeal and the style of Cormac McCarthy novels, uh, so to the surprise of no one, I'm giving this an A+. Whoa, no way. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, now, you know, let's have some fun. Let's get some recommendations in here. Elliot, you can go first. You already told me you're recommending a great movie. I don't know why you're recommending this movie, so I'm excited to hear your reasoning. But uh, what are you recommending? Uh, so I'm recommending a movie called Nightcrawler. Uh, this is with Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, he plays the main character, and it's about somebody, Jake Gyllenhaal, in fact, who tries to break into the world of nightcrawling, which is essentially people who shoot, um, and by sh shoot on a camera, who film like 
accidents or crimes or things that are newsworthy and then sell the footage to news stations for them to use in their reports. Um, and Jake Gyllenhaal plays a psychopath who, uh, as he goes along, resorts to increasingly illegal and ethically dubious methods of filming things. Like he moves people around on crime scenes uh, or in accidents to make it more aesthetically pleasing. The reason I'm choosing this is because I think that it's aesthetic style is similar to No Country for Old Men. It's got a lot of long shots of people. It's filmed kind of at a distance. Um, I feel like the main character is similar to Antoine Chigurh, or at least has a very similar worldview to him. Like he's basically, he's just out of, he's just in it for the money um, is all he wants. But most in, mostly, I think that this movie, it really seems like a kind of story that Sheriff Bell would read about and then <laughs> sadly comment on. Like if he had read this story to the deputy instead of the one about the people killing people in their backyard, I think it would fit in perfectly. This movie is about kind of in a, I think it's about things on two different levels on like a broader level. It is about a kind of degradation and a declining of morals, but th it's told in a more local uh, theme, which is about sensationalism and the absence of ethics in journalism. Um, but I think that you could apply a lot of the ideas that Nightcrawler deals with to the same kind of things that uh, No Country for Old Men is talking about. And also, it's just a really good movie with some fantastic performances by Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed. Yes. It, it is such a good movie. Uh, I've seen some people describe it as like taxi driver for the modern era, that it's sort of operating on a similar mindset. And Jake Gyllenhaal is just so sleazy in this movie. He looks greasy. His hair is greasy. He's gross. Yeah, he's... But the, it is a very good movie. Uh, my recommendation, kind of in a similar vein, I think, is also like a story that if Sheriff Bell would read it, he'd be like, wow, we're <laughs> society's going no country for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is a Korean film by the title Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. It is the first movie in Park Chan-wook's uh, Revenge Trilogy, of which... I think the most famous is Old Boy, the second one, but that one is terrible. So I'm not recommending that. This one follows a recently fired uh, Korean man who discovers that his sister needs kidney surgery and goes through questionable ways to try and get the money for this his sister or a kidney for his sister. And I'm recommending this movie for a lot of the same reasons Elliot recommended Nightcrawler. It's got a similar sort of vibe. The violence in this movie is very neo-Western-esque. It's presented very matter-of-factly, presented from a very distant sort of um, uh, worldview or scope. Vantage point. Bad with words. Vantage point. Thank you. 
And I think this movie also has a very Coen Brothers-esque sense of very dark irony that as soon as a character in the film makes a poor decision, no amount of good decisions later in the movie are ever going to be able to absolve them of the punishment that's coming their way for the bad decision. That ultimately all of the characters are going to be ruined by their poor choices further down the road. And so I think the movie has a very Coens-esque feeling to it that all of these characters, they're all like in this film in No Country for Old Men, they're all subservient to these greater laws of nature. This random fate, random chance is really going to screw them over in the end. But it's a really fantastic movie, really well shot, really well done, very well acted. I think a really interesting film. I'd love for Elliot to watch it someday. He hasn't because he hates old boys so much he refuses <laughs> to watch other movies by the same director. But I think it's a really fantastic movie, and if you liked No Country for Old Men, I think you'd like this one as well. Well, yeah, like Nathan said, I haven't seen this. I was kind of scared off of Park Chan Walk because I I do think Old Boy is quite terrible. Um, although I I do want to. Didn't he direct Decision to Leave? Yeah, yeah, which is that's also on, a great movie. That's on my list, and I I will see. You've told me about this movie before. I will see it eventually. It's just uh, I have other things to watch. Um, <clears throat> but hey, I just want to say that life is hard and full of disappointments. Uh, it, it's not hard. That, that's basically what Lo No Country for Old Men is saying. Life is hard and full of disappointments. For sure. Sometimes that disappointment is a hitman has killed you. Yes. <laughs> how how Oh, man. This is such a letdown. <laughs> but yeah, for we're, sure. uh, for sure. we've got a special two-episode week. So we're going to record for Nathan's favorite movie tomorrow because uh, I haven't seen it yet. There there are some not disappointing things coming up. Uh, Nathan's excited to talk about his favorite movie. Across the Spider-Verse is coming out pretty soon. I'm going to probably see it this week. I'm very excited for it. Nathan, I know you're planning on seeing it as well. Uh, it's a good week for movies, basically. Oh, yeah. It's a good week for movies. It's a good week to be a fan of Magellan's at the movies. Yes. So thank you so much Just for listening. Just like every week. <laughs> Just like every week. So yeah, thank you so much for listening. Uh, check out the second episode uh, as soon as you finish this one. And we'll see you next week for another, another episode. <laughs>